CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This is Carpe Consensus. Join hosts Ben Schiller, Danny Nelson, and Cam Thompson as they seize the world of crypto. Hello and welcome to Carpe Consensus. This is a podcast from the Coindesk Network and thank you for joining us today. And in the studio here is Danny Nelson. Hello. Hello, Danny. And also Cam Thompson. She is a Web3 reporter here at Coindesk. Good morning, Cam. Good morning. How's it going? It's going well. It's going well. Uh, We're full of beans. We're looking forward to Consensus, which takes place in Austin in April. And it's going to be an exciting show there. Danny, do you want to just tell our listeners, our dear listeners, what the show is about and why we're here? Yeah, so uh, Carpe Consensus, this is our opportunity to dig deep into all the big themes that we'll be talking about at Consensus Conference or Festival, whichever you prefer, and take a recap of what's going on in the wider crypto world, picking the most important themes, trends, and topics that are impacting the entire ecosystem. Excellent. Cam, uh, so what do we have on the show this week? All right. So this week, we're going to start with Inside the Desk, where we're taking a look at some of the biggest news in crypto last week. Then we're going to have a special a special edition of Cam's Corner with Daisy Aliotto of Dirt Media. We're going to be talking about building Web3 communities. going to be a lot of fun. We're going to get into a conversation on this new feature of consensus we have, NFT tickets with Sam Ewan, who's the SVP of Coindesk Studios. And then we'll close it out with Danny's Dungeon, which should be very spooky, scary, talking about Solana. Ooh, scary, scary, scary. All right, let's uh, let's get to it then. Okay, we're going to start this section with an important case regarding Dapper Labs. That's the creator of Top Shot Moments NFT collection, which was a big runaway juggernaut uh, at the center of the NFT boom. It's run a cropper recently with a ruling to say that uh, some of the NFTs that were being sold are in fact securities and could be uh, subject to SEC regulation. Cam, this is very much in your ballywick. Just tell us more about this case and why it matters. Yeah, so I think it's really interesting. I have been waiting for a moment in the NFT space where there is some regulatory question And not necessarily clarity, because I don't think we have that with this case, but it is a big moment calling these top shot moments securities. I think that a lot of this case came down to obviously the Howey test, which determines whether or not an asset is a security or a commodity. 
And in the case of Dapper Labs, because they were minted, these top shot moments, they were minted as NFTs on the Flow blockchain, which is a private network, which also has its own private Flow marketplace. That was one of the main reasons why these top shot moment NFTs were plausibly securities. Cam, can you just explain the distinction about a private blockchain versus a public blockchain and why that should make a difference in this case? Yes. So essentially, take an NFT minted on Ethereum. You know, Ethereum is a public network. Anyone can put NFTs on Ethereum. Anyone can mint an NFT on Ethereum. With Flow, it's a little bit different because, you know, it's privately owned and created by Dapper Labs. And a big part of this, too, is the centralization feature, right? I mean, this is a fully centralized marketplace slash blockchain that people can come partner with and put different projects on. Well, I, I think it's important to bring up two points in this case. One, this is a suit being brought by investors, not by the SEC, which is an important distinction because the SEC hasn't made any allegations itself in regards to Dapper yet, and therefore we don't know yet how they feel about NFTs. The second point I think important to remember the investors are, are upset that they lost money in this investment, and they're taking it out on Dapper Labs by alleging that these are securities. What the judge has done here is say, well, we're going to let this case move forward and see where it goes. And the core argument that the investors are alleging that these NFTs are securities, well, at this point in time, we're going to allow that, that argument to move forward. Well, Danny, I think it's interesting you talking about the investor's perspective because these top shot moments are pretty much digital collectibles. And there's a utility element that comes into these NFTs, right? And that's something that we'll talk about more throughout this episode, how NFTs can be used for different things. Yeah. And for me, you know, I have so many baseball cards, all right? I have stacks and stacks and stacks of baseball cards. I've spent thousands of dollars collecting these pictures of sports figures. Now we are moving into a world where these pictures of sports figures exist in a slightly different form in a digital environment. If my baseball cards aren't securities, and everyone thinks they aren't, then I struggle to understand why NFTs, and more specifically, why NBA Top Shot NFTs are securities. It's just a collectible. That's all it is. Sure, it will increase in value if people believe that the project has value, just like baseball cards do. But amid all this hubbub of securities law, I do think that Top Shot moments really stand outside of it. That's just my opinion as a, as a baseball card collector. And let me tell you, I've made more flipping Top Shots in like one go than I did flipping baseball cards my whole life. So maybe there is something to it. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. You just said it. That's something to it. There was such a hype around this market for flipping these NBA Top Shots. I mean, I remember a very distinct conversation I had with my roommate in college in February 2021, telling me that he had just made over $1,000 flipping a Top Shot moment. And with baseball cards, I mean, yeah, I personally, I've never been a collector of baseball cards. I'm sorry. So I can't really speak much to the market there. It's your loss. It's I'm sorry. You, you're really missing out on a golden opportunity here. I have so many. If you want to buy any, just let me know. I have so many. I'll hook you up. Can I please? Yes. Perfect. Awesome. I got the 2004 Tops edition. We're all good to go. Fantastic. But in that case, you know, like a lot of people would buy, would maybe not buy baseball cards for the same reason that they're buying Top Shot NFTs is what I'm trying to say, right? If you're investing in this NFT, you kind of have an idea. Let's, let's say it's March, so let's say it's February, March, 2021, and you've just found out about NFTs and you're trying to make money. You're trying to invest in this cool moment and flip it and 
kind of see what it does. You know what I mean? Maybe it is targeted towards those people who are super fans of the NBA, but at the end of the day, people were really capitalizing on this opportunity to try to make some money, get some ETH off of these trades. And I think in that case, that's where the securities law or potential securities conversation of how we're going to regulate these tokens really comes into play. All right. Welcome back to Cam's Corner. Today, we have a very exciting segment. We have a very special guest, Daisy Alioto, CEO of Dirt Media. We're going to be talking about Web3 communities and what's been going on with Dirt at the moment. Daisy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So I wanted to start off first question. What is Dirt? Dirt is a Web3 media company that is inbox forward. So we started off with our flagship newsletter, Dirt, and have plans to expand into other editorial verticals. So Dirt Media is the umbrella media company that Dirt is the flagship brand of. And we have over 23,000 subscribers. And we also have an NFT subscription and a DAO. So how do you see the community behind Dirt different or similar to a community that you would see from a non-Web3 integrated publication? Is there a notable culture difference that you can discern from the readership? Well, I don't know that it's a culture difference so much that the visibility of that audience is just totally different. And the way that they engage with our community is totally different. I think, you know, if you use the example of like the New York Times cooking section, I've long thought that the New York Times cooking section should be its own social media network. Some of the most interesting content you'll read is in the comments. And I think we all know this. And a lot of them have been pulled out and shared on other social media networks. And the New York Times, you know, has spun off gaming and cooking as separate subscriptions because they inherently understand that those communities are very different and passionate around those verticals. Um, but they haven't taken the additional step of creating a social network effect around those verticals, which I think is a mistake. That's something that we can do with our readers. It takes the idea of being a reader and adds additional value to it, where people really feel like, they have some brand equity. They have really aligned incentives with Dirt that as the brand grows and our platform increases, their sense of themselves as a community member that views being a Dirt reader as part of their lifestyle really deepens. And I've worked at media companies where the incentives between the community and the publication were really misaligned because the readers came in at a time before the publication scaled. And when the publication scaled, those incentives became very out of whack. I will also say there's a big distinction between our community and other Web3 communities. If you spend time in our Discord, there's no discussion about the value of an NFT. There's no discussion about floor pricing. The majority of what happens in our Discord is taste making, people making recommendations to one another, asking, what book should I read next? Or telling people, hey, I just watched the show. I think you would really like it. Um, and people are doing that of their own volition because they inherently trust the taste of other dirt readers. So part of what I'm exploring is how can we use Web3 technology and the potential of being a social network ourselves to really supercharge this tastemaker behavior. So with all of these different elements, building up a Web3 community, especially a Web3 media community, you know, what's that, what's that been like? If you can talk a little bit about what the experience is of onboarding people to this DAO, to the NFT token gating element, you know, how do you do it, especially in this time that we're in, in the crypto space? Yeah, I think onboarding people is the biggest challenge. We've certainly been the first NFT for a lot of people. I think we've also 
been an example of what a utility-driven NFT community could be. My goal is really to re-architect the relationship between a subscriber and a publication. And I think that Web3 tooling is the best way to do that. And what I see is this moment as an opportunity to claw back a lot of the engagement and intention that was given to large social media platforms like Twitter, like Facebook, which themselves are sort of struggling in this moment. Publishers really gave over a lot of their engagement to those platforms for free in exchange for distribution. So I see this moment and the opportunity of Web3 tooling as a way to claw back a lot of that attention. And I think a lot of publishers are just not in a position to take advantage of that because when you're a large publisher, you're a pretty big ship and it's hard to turn. But we're coming into this really from the grassroots up. Our brand has always included, almost since inception, this Web3 ethos. And so I think we're in a position to really take advantage of that and operate both as a publisher and a platform, using the wallet address as that fundamental unit of consumer data. Now, with the, uh, the wallet address as that unit, is it the wallet address that mints the NFT that's important, or is it the current owner of the NFT itself? Like, if I am a subscriber to Dirt and I have the NFT, and if for whatever reason I no longer want to be a subscriber, but my friend does, can I transfer that NFT to my friend and then the subscription will move over to my friend? So the way that we've done it is we have two different subscription tiers. We have the Founder Pass, which represents membership in the DAO and is a lifelong subscription. That is transferable. So that could be transferred to somebody else. The annual subscription is essentially soul bound for 12 months after when it was issued, so not when it was purchased. So we issued them in January 2023. It'll expire, which means it'll no longer allow you to access content in January 2024. At that point, we'll issue our January 2024 annual subscription, which will be a new digital collectible designed by a new artist. So everyone who's holding that 2023 subscription at that point, it'll become a digital collectible. It will no longer represent access to content, and they can decide whether to keep it or transfer it to somebody else. What do you think it looks like, uh, Web3, for these traditional companies? I mean, it's hard to imagine a magazine like Time that was existed for 100 years and kind of had pictures of uh, Roosevelt on the cover, you know, transferring to Web3. I mean, what does the future look like for them, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I don't have any direct relationships with other media companies, but I think we've created an interesting proof of concept, which is this idea that if you could start a media company in 2023, knowing everything that you know about the arc of digital media for the last 10 years and the best available technologies, how would you do it? One thing I would do is avoid giving away distribution for free. So that's that social media problem. Mm -hmm. I would also start building towards an advertising environment where advertisers are buying impressions against certain wallet profiles and digital collectibles rather than these kind of weak third-party data signals that we have now. Mm -hmm. And one example that I use frequently is the sneakers that you buy and then they follow you around the web for two weeks somebody's paying for that impression. And it's not useful to me because I already bought the sneakers and it's not useful to them. And I think that for a lot of brands, Google ads and Facebook ads have felt like this black box, but they're cheap enough that people continue to pour money in because it's possible to still sort of growth hack in that space. But I wouldn't say that advertisers are particularly satisfied. Hmm. In my career, I think the big watershed moment in the, in the relationship between publishers and advertisers was when sponsored content first emerged. And at the time, if you remember, I think it blew a lot of people's minds. It was like, 
oh, this is an ad, but it looks like a New York Times article, or this is an ad, but it looks like a Vox article. I think advertisements that are based on what somebody holds in their wallet will be another moment like that. But because digital publishers have traditionally operated as the billboard of the internet, there's no real estate to purchase an ad like that right now. So we also want to anticipate that rather than reacting to the technology and say, we'll be the real estate. You know, if 10% of the people reading content on our site have our Nike token, we'll be the real estate for New Balance to advertise to those people, or we'll be the real estate for Hoka to advertise to those people. There's a huge opportunity there. And we really want to think about how to not only serve readers and other publishers ultimately, but also advertisers themselves, because these three groups have always been linked symbiotically in the digital media ecosystem. Now, Daisy, earlier in the show, we were talking about uh, baseball cards and NBA Top Shot and a lawsuit against Dapper Labs from investors who felt wrong. Basically, the lawsuit alleges that NBA Top Shot NFTs are security, which is, in our opinion, a bit of a stretch. But it just brings up a wider question about how NFTs are used. Uh, and I'm wondering just how do you make sure that a subscription model which makes a lot of sense to us as, you know, as journalists who need to raise revenue for a publication. But like, how do you make sure that that stays on the up and up? Well, I mean, Gary Gensler has made some pretty strong comments about securities most recently in New York Mag. But even he made a distinction between cryptocurrency and the blockchain. The way I see it, the blockchain is like architecture and cryptocurrency is like real estate and that it's a market that overlays the architecture landscape. I'm really interested in that fundamental architecture and the way that it could change our relationships to content and allow us to have deeper engagement with publishers that we love. Just like, you know, going back to that old magazine ethos, the way that you felt holding a copy of Rolling Stone or Vogue, we want to use the new technology to bring back some of that personalization and point of view and taste making that was really lost in the time when brands were serving the algorithm more than they were serving their most enthusiastic readers. So I'm putting my faith in the blockchain. Cryptocurrency is going to go through a period of upheaval while these regulations are worked out. And I'm in favor of regulations that stop scams against ordinary people so that they can feel safe engaging in this environment. So I have faith that it'll work out. And I think ultimately consumers will be having blockchain experiences, but they'll probably be very abstracted. So we've seen a lot of that so far with brands entering Web3, but specifying their NFTs as digital collectibles and not really using any of that language that is more tied to the cryptocurrency side. Yet still, there is this idea that, you know, you were talking about this architecture in the real estate, you know, kind of being compiled into one larger phrase of, oh, this is this is all of Web3. This is like the cryptocurrency element and the blockchain element. So, you know, how what do you think needs to happen in order to kind of separate those two narratives? And how is DIRT, you know, working to make sure that it's emphasizing this blockchain technology as the underlying technology of this media company? I think building strong brands and strong content is a huge part of it. We're in an era where media is simultaneously overvalued and also undervalued uh, at the same time. I talk to investors who will say off the bat, we don't invest in media because it doesn't scale. But if you look at all the other companies in their portfolio, across various industries, they're all trying to figure out how to be a media company. You know, what distinguishes one sunscreen brand from another sunscreen brand? Media. If you look at Oatly, they have this huge billboard right now advertising their free newsletter. 
we're seeing media become a really important moat across a lot of different categories. The problem is that if you come to an investor or to the market media first, sometimes there's this pattern matching that happens that's pretty negative. So part of what I do is education around why I think content and branding will be the moat. But from a Web3 perspective, the blockchain has really inverted the way that data has been treated for the past decade. All of the data on the blockchain is free and available for anyone to use. So the people who can best take advantage of that either have to have the best and most proprietary technology, which is not my business, or the best brand moat with the most engaging content to keep people within their ecosystem as long as possible. That is my world. And I think a lot of NFT projects will pivot to being media companies. I don't think all of them are capable of it because it's not what they optimized for. They came to market during a time when financial speculation was the key incentive. That is not the key incentive of our community. But I'm excited to see new media models emerge, and I'm excited for Dirt to be the forefront of that. All right. So, Daisy, I am getting the Dirt newsletter in my inbox. I'm curious of all the content in Dirt. What is your favorite? I mean, it's impossible to choose, but I will plug a recent piece, which was very close to my millennial heart, which is a piece about the food in Napoleon Dynamite and how it's sort of subversively ugly. And so much of the food that we see on screen now is similar to the food that we see on social media, which is like really optimized for beauty and to be photographed. And the movie Napoleon Dynamite had just the most self-consciously disgusting food that you could possibly imagine. But in a way, like rewatching it now, um, the writer Leo Kim talks about how it's almost more enticing uh, because it has been optimized for photography and there's something really uh, alluring about that. So it's a little bit of a, of a nostalgic piece that looks back at a piece of content that's existed for a long time, but puts this very contemporary lens around it. And that's like peak dirt. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. I'll have to read that. Cool. Well, Daisy, thank you so much for joining us. And we will catch you next week on Cam's Corner. Thank you, Daisy. Thanks, guys. Calling all early stage crypto, blockchain, and Web3 startups, teams, and builders. Apply to Coindesk PitchFest, powered by Google Cloud, and pitch live on stage at Consensus in Austin this April. Winners will receive two VIP Piranha Passes to Consensus 2024, featured coverage on Coindesk, and an invitation to present at Coindesk's Private Investor Summit, Ideas 2023. Learn more and apply at consensus.coindesk.com slash pitchfest. All right, so we're joined now by Sam Ewan. He is the head of Coindesk Studios, which is an important arm of the Coindesk empire. Good day to you, Sam. How are you today? I am doing fantastic. Great seeing you, Ben, Cam, and Dan. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks for being here. So we're going to talk about a a project that you're launching uh, with Consensus, which is an NFT ticketing project. And I just want to make clear to our listeners that we're not actually just shilling uh, Consensus and NFTs at that grand event. We want to have a larger discussion about. That's right, guys. Ben Schiller is not shilling anything. (laughs) That's right. That's right. So, um, yeah, we're not we're not going to stay true to my name. Uh, we're going to talk about the wider issue of uh, how NFTs, NFT ticketing can uh, impact the live events industry. So before we get to that, Sam, just uh, kind of catch us up on what this project is and, and what you're doing. Absolutely. So first of all, thank you for having me with such an esteemed group of people. I love being here. So one of the things that we have been focused on is 
the fact that the live events industry is kind of broken right now. Um, and this includes all in, all segments of it. And if, if it's cool, I'll give you 30 seconds on some, some history. Um, I've, I come out of a 20-year career of working in the live event business. But right now, the live event industry is poised to be a $1.5 trillion industry by 2028. So it's one of the largest that exists. And what we saw most notably with the merger of Ticketmaster and Live Nation in 2010 was this kind of monopolization of the live event industry. And it's not just Live Nation, it's also Disney. It's, it's sort of, the, there's a couple of big companies that really run most of the events that, and experiences that people go to. And since then, it's always been putting a price tag on people's heads. Everyone who comes to a theme park, everyone who comes to a movie theater, everyone who goes to a concert, how do you get the most money out of them? And I think that that is something that because you have this monopolistic tendency, it's very easy to say, oh, you want to come see Donald Glover or you want to come see Taylor Swift. We can sort of hit you for as much money as possible. And I'm firmly in the camp of the people who are your most loyal fans. We should be rewarding as much as possible because they help build your business. They also are often the most rabid fans and we should be giving them more versus taking more away. And so that's where we looked at consensus um, in our ninth year and said, how can we change that paradigm and created a project called Microcosms, which I'm happy to tell you as much about as you want. But really it was the, the core concept of could we reward our loyal fans with as much as possible for the fact that they do spend their money to come to consensus and spend time with us. So just talk about the logistics first. What exactly are you selling and what, what are people buying? Yeah, great. So this is for both the core crypto audience and for them to sort of dabble in an NFT ecosystem that is rewarding value back. And it's also for the NFT audience to get to introduce them to consensus and the fact that consensus is such a valuable place for them to be. So in essence, a person buys a piece of art, one of our microcosms. Um, so let's just say you got microcosm 212. You would get a generative piece of art with a generative artist named Fahad Karim, who is an engineer and a programmer who's worked with Artblocks and a bunch of other folks um, in creating beautiful artwork. That artwork is yours as part of the NFT. As long as you hold that artwork for the next three years, you're going to get rewards. All right. So Sam, talk about how these concepts of NFT tickets, uh, which might be sort of longer running than the event themselves, and as, as in this case, might change the kind of game of the ticketing industry. I mean, I, I still find it incredible that the regulators flagged through this merger between Live Nation and Ticketmaster. I mean, it seems like if you were to create a monopoly in the, you know, live events ticketing business, this is exactly how you would do it. So I, I don't quite know why they did, but anyway, uh, how, do, how do you think that NFT ticketing can potentially change the game and, and, and stop the kind of power that these companies have? I mean, again, looking at that monopoly is amazing because you had, you had Live Nation who controlled about 70% of all the venues in the US, both large and small for bands to be able to play in. And then you had Ticketmaster, which was like 80% of all the ticketing. And you put them together and then suddenly we control the venue and we control the ticket side. There was a famous battle between Pearl Jam and, uh, and them because Pearl Jam basically said they wanted to create a floor price that was affordable. And then Live Nation said, that's under what we're comfortable charging and we're going to charge our percentage on top. So often, as, as any, anyone has gone to a concert recently, you find that you end up paying sometimes up to 25% additional just in the fees alone. And that's because there's no competition, right? It's not like Eventbrite is a real comp competitor when it comes to this. And so the idea, I think, is really fascinating about being a loyal fan and getting access to opportunities that 
you might not be able to get if you just come through the normal rails, because the normal rails are really gamed for you right now. So Sam, thanks very much for coming on the show. Just tell people how they can get participating in this. Yeah, so the Microcosms project drops on Thursday, March 2nd. It's at coindesk.com slash consensus NFT. And yeah, we'd love for everyone to check it out. It's not a, a cheap mint, but we think we've added a tremendous amount of value to it. And yeah, we'd love to see you check it out. So Sam Ewan is also the co-host of the Gen C podcast, which is uh, all about the kind of way in which uh, brands are taking to Web3 and commercializing it. So thanks very much again, Sam. It's my pleasure. See you guys. It's 2.34 in the morning. There's snow coming down from the sky. You're staggering through the dark, hitting snowbanks, searching for a way, searching for a light. You find an opening in the heap. You push away the snow, staggering through the entrance, and then you fall into the bank. You're falling into Danny's Dungeon. Welcome to another edition of Danny's Dungeon. This week, we're going to talk about what I was doing at 2.34 a.m. a couple days ago, and it had nothing to do with snowbanks and everything to do with Solana, which has nothing to do with standing up straight because that blockchain keeps falling over itself. Ooh, Danny's Dungeon. Thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> so so why why were you falling down at uh, 2.34 in the morning, apart from the obvious reason? Well, what is the obvious reason? Well, that you were drunk and tipsy and falling over drunk. Look, that's, that's completely irrelevant to the story, okay? Uh, this is Utah, not Colorado. I, at 2.34 a couple of days ago, I was writing about the Solana network, which had a rather large 20-hour-long hiccup, during which no one was really able to do anything on the blockchain because it just wasn't working. And we've seen this before with Solana, especially in 2022, where the network just kept breaking for many different reasons. And now the tech problems are back. And it's got people thinking, well, what are we going to do about this blockchain if it doesn't work all the time? This is not a one-off thing. This is happening with some relative frequency that no one can access the Solana network. So Danny, why was this Solana outage different from previous outages? Why are people starting to really question what is actually going on inside this network and all these validators? Well, I wouldn't say that they're just starting to question it. Maybe the anger is boiling over a little bit more than it has before, just because people are getting annoyed that their DeFi projects, which are reliant on Solana, can't work right if Solana's not working. So they're left with nothing to do other than to complain that things aren't working well. Now, one thing that I did notice working and writing up until four in the morning local time was I was impressed. I don't know if impressed is the right word, but we'll go with it. I was quite impressed by the level of discombobulation that was happening in the Solana Discord. Now, a lot of people make allegations when Solana restarts itself, like, oh, you have a restart button. It's so centralized. It's really not the case. In fact, it's anything but. When the network tries to stand itself back up again, it's because the validators, and there are over a thousand of them, are trying to coordinate a restart. And the restart doesn't happen until 80% of the staked tokens are committed to the restart. So it takes hours to make that happen. There is no button to just restart the network. Right. Is that a good thing or a bad thing, Danny? 
Well, from the perspective of decentralization, it's a very good thing, right? Like everyone would make a lot of hullabaloo if Solana Labs just had the restart button or if you could just, you know, unplug the router and plug it back in after 30 seconds. If we're in a decentralized environment, I think that it makes perfect sense that the attempt to fix something should be messy and should take the buy-in of a lot of people. Because if it's not being bought in by a lot of people, that means it's centralized. So, Danny, I mean, it seems like Solana's taken a lot of hits recently. Um, you know, there was a number of outages last year. Then there was the whole FTX fallout with uh, Solana being closely identified with SPF and FTX. And then a number of developers have left the ecosystem recently. And then we have this big outage. I mean, is this existential for Solana or do you see it coming back full force going forward? Well, you know, there's only one blockchain that keeps falling off a cliff and it's Solana. And if it's to be taken seriously at the scale that it envisions for itself, then it does need to fix whatever these problems are. Solana engineers don't yet fully understand what caused this issue, and they're going to need to figure that out, and they're going to need to work really hard to make sure these things don't happen again. Yeah. On the day that the failure happened, the, the network had moved to upgrade its software. And there's a belief that the issue probably stemmed from the software upgrade. But the software upgrade was being run on testnet to make sure everything worked well for months. And they didn't catch this then. So how are you going to make sure that your code is all up and good and ready to go if your testing environment doesn't actually figure out the bugs? So Danny, you were up at uh, 2.34 in the morning, you were scratching around for this story, probably half bug-eyed and wanting to go to bed. Uh, what were you seeing in this uh, Discord? Well, then I was seeing myself. You know, I've been in the Solana Discord for over a year now, just lurking. Uh, a lot of people know that I'm there and it's a public Discord. There's no problem that I am there. But after my story came out, my story which credited the Discord and messages shared in the Discord... Uh, one of the engineers from Solana Labs gave me a shout out. Uh, he, apparently his last name is also Nelson, no relation. But he screenshotted my tweet about how Coindesk was lurking and he shared it in the Discord. I couldn't respond to the, his message because it was in a read-only Discord channel. So that was a little sad. But it was a little funny for me to see th the community noticing that I was up watching what they were doing and reporting on it too. They kind of told themselves after my article came out, oh, we got to be careful about what we say. The media's watching. And then they immediately went back to hitting each other over the head with a stick. So that was very funny for me. That's funny. Yep. We're always watching Discord, Twitter. One of us is always there hanging out, seeing what's up. Lurking in the dungeon. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for joining us. That was Carpe Consensus. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Danny. Make sure you catch us next week. Going to be a lot more exciting updates. Hopefully no network outages or crazy SEC rulings. But who knows? Crypto's wild. And that's why we're covering it. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye-bye. Carpe Consensus is a Coindesk production. Executive produced by Jared Schwartz. And produced and edited by Eleanor Paul. Have any questions or comments? Email us at podcasts at coindesk.com. Subject line, Carpe Consensus. Thanks for listening and see you next week.